Friend is in the first service, we will have full up kid zones. So nursery right through grade five. And in the second service at this point will be nursery only. So next Sunday morning, beginning at nine, there's a live stream broadcast at nine and then it'll be rebroadcast at 11. And there'll be hosts online in both of those services like we always do even right now. Why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? Several reasons. God has stirred our leaders. We've been watching, we've been praying, we've been saying, God, what would you have us do? And we absolutely believe God has called us to do this without question. Secondly, we're a people of faith because we don't know exactly what's going to happen. When we launched two services in the past, we didn't know what was going to happen. Not totally sure now, but we're a people of faith. We're called to be a people of faith. And we're definitely in a growing season, and so we want to maximize space for ministry. And obvious to us, we believe God said doing nothing is not an option. But really at the heart of this is because people need Jesus. People, whether they really know it or not, are longing to have an encounter with the Jesus who went to the cross for them. And so we want to make room for you and for your friends. We encourage you to invite your friends. We invite you to come early and stay late so you can see perhaps your friends or the new ones that'll be here. If you're here at nine or they're here at 11, come early, stay late. Next Sunday, September 25th, two services, 9 and 11. Let's pray together. So Father, now as we bow in your presence, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word. It's an incredible gift, the most profound book by far in the world. The the revelation of you that's very specific of your story, of the sort of meta stories as well as very specific stories that have played out through history, that are still alive and living. Scripture says sharper than any two-edged sword today. And so we pray that as we consider it, that you'd speak, that we would hear, that we'd be touched, that we'd be changed. And so we invite this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us have either participated in or seen on TV track and field events, perhaps at the Olympics. And if you've seen the track and field events, more than likely you have seen the relay races where they pass the baton, baton just like this. And without looking back, there's a team that's running and the person that's running the first leg of the race, without looking back, is running as fast as they can and they extend their hand backwards and they open their hand and their teammate is running up behind them and seeks to place the baton in their teammate's hand. And it's at this point of the race where it's not especially pertinent if you're in first place as a team or a little bit behind. Because if you drop that baton, or you fumble it, or you mishandle it, or you have to try it several times, it's going to be definitely affecting your position in the race. And a team that's behind that has a perfect passing of the baton can make up a lot of ground. It's crucial, and if you've seen this, you know, it's crucial to pass 
the baton right. We're launching a new series today called Passing the Baton. And it's about three of the major characters of Scripture, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Grandfather, father, grandson. And we're going to be looking together over a long period of time at the interplay between these generations, the things that they experience, the things that they learn together, the interactions between them and how they affected one another and how at one point in particular, for example, today, they passed on incredible, mind-boggling lessons of faith. And they demonstrated, and we're going to see this today, demonstrated today in the clearest of terms what the Christian life is really meant to be like, how it's meant to be lived. But at other moments, we're going to discover in their lives when they spectacularly failed and the repercussions of that and the lessons that were learned intergenerationally through that. And the big question we're going to be asking through this series, and in particular today, and asking ourselves over and over again as we go through their stories is, what are you passing on? Are you passing on faith or failure to the coming generations? Are you fumbling the passing of the baton? Did you drop the baton? Or are you showing an example by passing the baton properly to those coming up? Let me ask you, what do you hope to be doing when you're 75 years of age? In our culture, a lot of people view it as a time where you're just supposed to sit back and, in some people's mind, just wait to die. This is not a biblical picture at all. And you're going to see some pictures behind me of what some people think of what 75 or so years of age should look like. What about Abraham, the first character that actually is beginning in the beginning of his story is called Abram. God changes his name to Abraham later. And we're going to begin talking about his story when he's 75 years of age, at a time where maybe he would have, a lot of people would be worrying about whether they have their dentures in or not. He was out doing something incredible for God. And so I guess we just got to that picture. Okay. <laughs> you have your Bible or your device. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. It's the first book of the Bible. And it's the story of the beginnings. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verses 1 to 9. The story of Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. There's some warnings and some dire and interesting invitations in those verses. I will bless those who bless you and curse whoever curses you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old 
when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, her lane changes to Sarah later, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moray at Shechem. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. Has God ever asked you to go somewhere? Has God ever asked you to give something up? Has God ever asked you to be something? I believe with all my heart that Jesus wants to go on an adventure with each one of us. And the adventure will look different than Abraham's. But he desperately wants to go on an adventure with you. Now understand something about this cultural setting. And this is a truth we're going to see all through scripture. In the lives of the people that we just read about, God was to be first and primary in their life. This is a message that's repeated all through scripture. That God's absolute desire, his indication, his command for us, if you're going to follow Jesus, is that he would be first in your life, bar none. But after that, especially for these people, and even in our day, uh, I'm a city boy, so it's hard for me to understand this, but I've seen this in many farmers. After God being first in their life, the next highest priorities in their life were land and family. And I'm not always sure which order it was. Family and land. When you got married in the day of Abraham, you didn't move to another city or the other side of the city or across the province or to another country. You just moved across the tent compound. And when you walked out of the tent in the morning, you waved across the compound to mom and dad have breakfast, and then you would go out to manage your people and manage your sheep. You stayed together in those family units on your land that was passed down generation after generation. And God says to this guy who's 75 years of age, this ordinary but fairly successful business person, I want you to leave the things that are most important to you in life. I want you to completely pack up. I want you to leave your country, your home, your land, and your family never to return. You're not going to be able to call them. You're not going to be able to FaceTime with them. You're not going to be able to text them or email them. And when you say goodbye, the next time you see them, you'll be in heaven. And by the way, Abraham, Abram, I want you to just start walking in that direction there. And I'll let you know at some point in the future where you're going. Because Abram, I want to go on an adventure with you. The God of the Bible wants to go on an adventure with you as well. 
Abraham, I'm your God, and I'm asking you to leave everything that you know for a place I will show you. Has God ever asked you to go somewhere? Has God ever asked you to give something up? Has God ever asked you to become someone? It'll be the adventure of a lifetime. It will make a difference for all eternity. And people will be blessed. And in this passage, it says in verses 2 and 3, not only will the people right around you be blessed, but it says in fulfillment of this promise from God, all the world will be blessed. And because of the reply of Abraham, we are blessed today. And with mind-boggling faith and courage and obedience, Abraham obeys. He doesn't delay. He doesn't think about it for a while. He says, I'm in God. We're going to start packing tomorrow. Missionaries, we like to call them international workers now, with our family of churches This is a Christian Missionary Alliance church, and we have like, I don't even know how many, 23 or 24 or 25,000 churches around the world. When we would send, and we still do send missionaries out, uh, international workers. Um, When I was growing up, and I never saw one of these, but I'd always hear that the missionaries would pack their stuff in barrels. And these were waterproof containers And these people would go for four years to the place where God had called them and where they were being sent, wherever it was in the world, often to very dangerous places. And then they would come home for a year and serve. I think nowadays all they do is just take their laptop and a bunch of suitcases. But let me tell you about how Alliance missionaries, Alliance international workers, would pack more than 100 years ago. When God was calling them to go somewhere and to serve wherever that was. One of the things they would have built is they would go to a carpenter, they would have their measurements taken, and they would have a coffin made that would fit them. And they would pack their belongings in that coffin because they left with the expectation that they would more than likely never come home. And they would die serving Jesus in some place. And many, many, many of them did. When we ask you to give to missions, on the little white envelopes in the chairs in front of you, it says Global Advance. That goes to fuel all our ministries around the world. Or it says New Ventures or Canadian Ministries. That's for stuff here in Canada. We encourage you to give liberally and sacrificially to that because the people that are out there doing that are laying it on the line. And many of them serve in very dangerous places. That's why we can't even use their names. This story says to me, Scott, what's the coffin in your life worth going all in for? Do you have something bigger than you that God has called you to? Do you have a coffin that's been built for you? Do you know what that call is? Are you just kind of, you know, almost kind of stumbling through life? 
Or have you offered your life to him and asked him, what would you have me do? Where would you have me go? What would you have me be? And I don't care if you're 75 years old or 15 years old or 35 years old. Today is the day to answer that question. Jesus put something in my heart to do when I was 16 years old. And I've made lots of mistakes in my life, but I remember the day I did it, and I said yes, and I started getting ready for what he called me to do the next day. Maybe you're supposed to go to the mission field somewhere. Because there's people all around the world that have never heard the name of Jesus, never heard it explained to them in a way that they can understand and give their life to. Maybe you're meant to be a plumber. Maybe that's God's call. Maybe to be a doctor. Maybe to be a carpenter. Maybe to be an engineer. Maybe to be a pastor like me. Maybe you'd be an effective business person like Abraham, who is a, just, just an, an average, normal lay person, who, and, and you are going to just say, yes, and I'm going to be a great business person, and I'm going to be over-the-top generous for the kingdom of God. What's God's yes for you? And so in verse 5 and 6, after having said yes and God saying, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless those that bless you, and I'm going to curse you, those that curse you, and in fact, all the peoples of the world are going to be blessed because of you. If you took God out of the equation, if he just created us and took him, himself out of the equation, we would have destroyed ourselves a long, long time ago. And I think part of the reason we're still here is because Abraham said yes a long time ago. And so in verses 5 and 6, they're traveling along, and they arrive in the land of Canaan, and they cruise around the land, and they end up in the Negev, which especially at that time was a desolate, water-deprived, barren, wilderness-slash-desert-like area. Now, this is interesting to me. Because if you know the book at all, you know that God looks at these people and says, these are my chosen people. At one place, he says, they're the apple of my eye. And if this is true, which I believe it is, why would God send them to the Middle East to where we are told, where I've been told by some professors, this is the least resourced region of the entire world. Like you just don't see water very often there. If they had gone way far to the east, you would have come to the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And reportedly, this is where the Garden of Eden was located because it's so lush. Or if you'd gone to the west, you would have come to Egypt and the Nile, lots of water there, called the Fertile Crescent part of the Middle East. And just like in North American history, if you know your history, the, high, the rivers were the highways of the region. They brought prosperity and beauty. This is where the people gravitate to because they need to drink water where the cities are built. So why wouldn't God have sent his chosen people to one of the quote-unquote good places? The only thing that Canaan had going for it if you know geography, 
is that all of the conquering armies at that time, and to a certain extent even to this day, use that as a transit route on their way to beat someone up somewhere else. And it's a bridge area, if you look at the map, between four continents, and all the trade routes would go through that part of the world to get to some, they didn't want to stay there, they wanted to get to somewhere else. So it kind of sounds like the city of Moose Jaw. Why would God send them there? I think this is why. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it says this, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When you go to Israel today, I would suggest that they have not only survived, but they have thrived. The people, they do a lot of sinful things too. But they have not only survived, they have thrived. And many parts of the land there, despite the incredible lack of water, are just beautiful because they have carefully managed the very limited water. And one of the things they like to say is, we have made the desert bloom. And in many places there they have. But more important than that, I absolutely believe God did this so that his strength and his power would be on display. That in their weakness, in this desolate land, they could make it bloom in a way that would point to him. You go there and you realize something bigger than hard work and ingenuity and perseverance built this place. For anybody listening, and most people aren't, I believe it shouts that there is a God and he is with them and he has made this happen because he's fulfilling what he promised to do in chapter 12. One of the patterns, you've heard me say this before, but if you read the book, one of the patterns you see that gets repeated over and over and over again all through the 66 books of the Bible or what I would call, not original with me, the three Ps. There's a promise. God gives a promise. We see this in verses 2 and 3. And then there are all kinds of problems. And we are going to discover in this series all kinds of problems coming up. And then there is provision. And it's not a linear equation. It just doesn't go from here to here to here. It kind of circles. And so there's promises. Then there's all kinds of problems. And it circles back to the promise. Then it jumps ahead to the provision. And we're going to see this on display over and over again through these these sermons. In fact, we're going to see it right away in verse 7. Because it says in verse 7, which is really an amplification of verse 2 and 3, and some time has gone by, but God just sort of says, as you're on the journey, I want to give you a little pep talk to remind you of the promise. And so he says to Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord, which had appeared to him. Now, this is a very interesting passage because remember, Abraham is at least 75 years of age at this point, and they've been journeying for a while. He has no children at this point. 
no children. But God says, I will give this land to your offspring that will one day be born. And God is saying to Abram, I'm going to put you in a place where you have to trust me. And I absolutely believe, I've said this many times, I say this to our staff here many times, this is a great place to be in life. Where if God doesn't come through, you're completely hooped. And you're not in that place, and this is the very important thing to remember, you're not in that place because of foolish choices or sinful choices. You're in that place because God has directed you clearly to that place, and unless he comes through, you're bound to failure. And you're there simply because of faith-filled obedience. So God tells us to go somewhere or to do something or to be something. Then the problems will begin to come, and we have to trust him. And in doing this, it shows his strength, it shows our weakness, our limitations, and it allows for him to be glorified, which he deserves to do. So let me just ask you, where are you right now? Are you at the promise stage? Um, as I said before, have you, have you really offered your life to him, or are you just kind of hoping for the best as you go through? Have you allowed him to direct it? Because I don't believe for one moment you'll regret it if you do. Maybe you're at the problem stage and you've been obedient and you've said yes and now there are all kinds of roadblocks coming up. There are spiritual attacks against you and the evil one is stepping up to attack you because when you're dormant and not really doing anything, he just kind of lets you go. But when you start saying yes to Jesus, the spiritual attacks will come. And then there'll be people that will attack you and there'll be circumstances that make it difficult. And any of these things, these spiritual attacks, people or circumstances, these are a sign that Jesus is at work in you. Not always the case, but this is a sign that you're saying yes to God. If there's no opposition in your life, that's probably not a good sign. So can you imagine Abram, he gets this word from God, and he says to the whole clan, he says, huddle up, I have an announcement, we're pulling up stakes, we're leaving the most important things in our life, the things that we've always valued for the generations, and we're leaving tomorrow, and we will never return. So say your goodbyes tonight. I bet you the family was really happy with him right then. And the invitation when that happens is to stay focused because God, when he gives a promise, also promises provision. And it will likely come in an unexpected way. It will come in a way where God alone gets the credit. And my experience is, is he usually gives it um, what we would consider the last moment. He's seldom early. What we would think of as early. Now, in those days, and to a certain extent still in some segments of our society, they practice the oral tradition. I was just at something not too long ago, and uh, it was a big, long thing, and, and some of the people were involved. God did some incredible stuff in this setting, and the people on the other side of the room that were involved, they said, 
We can't believe what God has done here. This story will be told generationally for the generations to come over and over again. And this is what we see at play here. The oral tradition where the story and the history of what God is doing is told over and over and over and over again. Still practiced in many places of the Middle East as well, especially now. And so Abraham would have sat down, and here's a spoiler alert, with his son Isaac at night. They'd work hard all day. They'd have supper or whatever. Then they'd sit around the campfire at night because the Wi-Fi was out, and they would talk. And Abraham would tell the story of what God did. And Isaac would say, I can't believe what God did. How did you have the courage and the faith to trust him, Dad? Tell me what that's like. How does that work? And they would tell the story over and over and over again. We serve the God who has created all the universe, who sustains all the universe, who allows the next breath that I take, the God who can be trusted, the covenantal God, the God who gives us promise and allows for problems and then gives provision. And it all begins with this deep faith and incredible courage. And when we say yes, when it would be so much easier to say no and settle for a mundane, ordinary life. Grandparents, parents, teachers, aunts, uncles, what are the children and the next generations learning from you? We come to the end of our first four years in ministry. I think I was 26 years old at that point. We'd been pastoring in Cornac for four years by ourselves at that point. Debbie was pregnant with our first child, four months old, uh, four months pregnant, sorry. We had both worked. I was a pastor. She worked in the grocery store. Uh, we didn't have very much, but we saved very hard, and we were able to save $3,000. And at that point, God clearly showed us it's time to move on and return to school for me to go to gra- do some graduate work and get another degree. Now, you need to understand about me, if you don't know me very well, I'm a reasonably rational guy. I like to have things all figured out before going ahead. And here's God saying uh, to Scott and Debbie, I want you to resign from your church, move to another city, spend a whole whack of money that you don't have to get another degree, and I want you to do all this well, your wife is four months pregnant and you have no job to go to. Now, being honest, it would be more in my character now to do something like that because I've lived a long time and I've seen God faithful over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. I could tell you stories for probably a hundred hours of that faithfulness. Not always easy, but of his faithfulness. So it'd be maybe a little easier now. Wouldn't be easy, but easier. 
But decidedly back then, it was not in my character to do something like that. But we both sensed that God's plan was for us to do this. We resigned, we left, we moved to go to grad school. We moved into this noisy little fourplex apartment and started going to school full time. Meanwhile, Debbie was getting bigger and the bank account was getting smaller. And I think with $3,000, we had about enough money to live for four months, very frugally. And I was out looking for a job all the time I was going to school and there was nothing. And right about the time that the money was running out, I got a job working with social services and a number of people said, I don't know how, especially the people I worked with, I don't know how you got this job. This just doesn't happen like this. And it was a very demanding job. It was a very dangerous job, but it was a good job. And during that time, we were able to have both our children. Both our children were born. And I continued going to school and working. Graduated, all paid off, and we had more money in the bank than when we started. Now, it doesn't always work like that, okay? I could tell some stories that don't work like that. And the provision of God comes in a variety of ways. But I ask you this, has God ever asked you to go somewhere? Has God ever asked you to do something? Has God ever asked you to be something? And this morning, I want to invite you, and I'm going to invite the team to come up, This morning, I want to invite you to go on an adventure with Jesus. I have no idea what that means for you. You should ask him, and I would encourage you to step in with bold faith so that you will have some incredible stories to pass on to the next generation.